Good morning, Cedar Mill. My name is John Johnson. It's my privilege to be here this morning to open God's Word. We're here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just before I look in God's Word uh, with you this morning, let me pray, uh, and then we'll dig in. Dear Lord, uh, open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits to everything you would like us to hear, you would like us to see, and hopefully uh, grab hold of in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have seen it, perhaps, if you've been to Israel, or it's easy to miss, really, but there it stands. There is uh, what some call the the most holy site in Israel. Perhaps, in fact, some would say it's the most holy site of the world, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But if you stand there and you look at it just as you come in, you'll notice something that's really a little bit strange. There is a ladder that is there on a ledge, perhaps left by a mason doing repairs. It sits on this ledge against a wall on the front of the church. You really can't miss it. It's, it's seemingly out of place, sort of like a vacuum cleaner that's been left uh, in a living room. And it's been in the same position, what, and this is what makes it interesting. It's been there since 1837. That's uh, 184 years maybe like some vacuum cleaners in a living room. But when you see this ladder, you can't help but step back and ask yourself why. I have taken various groups to Israel, and I always, I can't help but think about this crazy ladder. It's there as, in a way, a symbol, a troubling symbol, actually a really embarrassing symbol. Because it's a symbol of something going on in the church. This church that's been there for centuries has uh, been operated by six different uh, groups. Orthodox, Coptic, Catholic, Armenian. And one of the things about these groups is they're all very protective of their turf. There has been uh, historically fistfights, verbal arguments that sometimes break out. And this explains the problem. No one is really quite clear who owns this particular ledge or the window on which the ladder rests. In fact, it's not even clear who owns the ladder. So there it is. It stays there. And I've often thought when I look at this ladder, it's one of the more unfortunate symbols of the church. For in our holy sites, we too have our own bickering, our own biting, Things that go on that are sometimes even more trivial than ladders. All too often, it too can be about turf issues, expectations, procedures. It certainly was, as we've seen already in studying this book in 1 Corinthians, it's been the story of the church. Paul, as you might remember, has come to this church and invested 18 years in planting it and grounding it. But over time, as Paul has gone on to other places, he is getting word that this church is starting to divide. There are these rivalries that are taking place that he talks about in chapter 1. It was, of course, common. It was common in ancient cities of this day for there to be parties and rivalries, a sort of social stratification going on between the rural and the urban, the elite and the well, we'll call them de the deplorables. Paul had to address this in Philippi, as well as he does here. I want you just for a moment, if you have your Bibles open, to follow as I read what Paul has to say. 
Brothers and sisters, here 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Brothers, sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly, for since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not mere worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, well, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? We're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters really is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Now behind these words, Paul, I think, is giving several exhortations, and I'm going to focus on four. They're all really quite obvious, and the first one is this. Paul is saying, stop being like children, which he is saying here in verses 1 and 2. Paul is saying, I I would like to speak to you as adults, but I can't. You are uh, not the pneumatikoi that I'd like to speak to. He takes a word that speaks of people who are spiritual. And of course, even the Corinthians saw themselves as these pneumatikoi, these spiritual ones, these ones who have the spirit in them. They are not the hoi polloi, the common, the ordinary These are the ones of another realm, empowered from on high. And Paul is saying, in effect, well, I wish I could speak to you like that, but but I can't. I can almost hear Paul saying, as a pastor to them, I wish we could go a lot deeper. I wish we could really dig into some spiritual truths, some substantial truths. We could talk about theological issues. We um, We could talk about the mission of the church. We could talk about how to bring glory to God. We could talk about how to advance a kingdom, how to maybe reach Athens or Sparta. These are the things I'd like to talk to you about, but we can't because there is this immaturity, this propensity to live on a natural plane, as he puts it. So Paul is unable to go any further. I like how Peterson, in his paraphrase, puts it. I'm completely frustrated by your own spiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing more than breastfeeding. Uh, What Paul is saying is that when I look at you, there's no real spiritual appetite. There's no level of digestion that can handle essential food. And this has been the pattern, as Paul says in verses 2 and 3. Paul's mission was, is to Present the church uh, as the bride to Christ, he says in 2 Corinthians 11. The problem is this church hasn't even reached adolescence. They don't even know what boys are yet. And I can't help but wonder as I read these words how much this might apply to how many churches today in our country who are still at an infancy level, still with 
flannographs when there should be the rigors of discipleship going on. People who maybe still can't get past John 3.16. Scott McKnight talks about what he calls the ecclesiastical juvenilization of the church. Church is trying to be one large youth group with people caring less about growing up and more interested in staying young. It's Is it any wonder, really, when you think about it, how today culture dismisses a lot of evangelicals as irrelevant, as gullible, as prone to uncritically adopt conspiracy theories, believe in the latest disinformation, follow the latest prophet who claims some vision from God, and falling for the latest get-rich-quick schemes. This is what Paul is dealing with. This is what we're dealing with. There is, if you look in leadership circles and you talk about leadership training, there is what's called situational leadership, where your style of leading has to conform to the level of one's ability to follow. It's called readiness level and leadership style level. And these people are at, when you think about it, they're at this readiness level, number one, that requires a leadership style level, number one. That is, they are unable and they're unwilling And so what they need is a leadership that's less relational, more directive, and more confrontational. So that's why Paul's language is is so tough, it's so severe, because he's having to adapt to where they are. They bicker, as he says in verse 3, they fight like little children. There are these petty jealousies, and there is what he calls strife. It's a word that speaks of really hot disputes. And it all bears out their fleshliness. So Paul has to hit this head on. And I can, I can feel for him a, li- a bit myself having pastored churches for some 35 years. I pastored a church in the Netherlands, a church that had 35 nationalities. And we ranged everything from Pentecostal to High Anglican. So you can imagine the disputes, the disagreements. I remember there was this couple who decided they wanted to contribute to the uh, beautification of the church. They would tend the, the garden outside of our Dutch, former Dutch Reformed church. They'd plant flowers. They'd go to the nursery. And I remember one day they bought this little ceramic frog and they put it there in sort of the flower bed. And it really looked kind of cool. But there was one family in the church They came to church that Sunday, they looked at that frog, and right away they knew it was demonic. And they started writing letters, and churches began to take sides. It was crazy. Churches will argue over the most mundane and crazy things. Later, there was the precepts and the Bible study fellowship controversy. I can think of lots of controversies over the years. The church here in Corinth was also known for being factious and contentious and divisive. But the issue wasn't frogs. The argument was, as we see in this text, over party affiliation. People were dividing over personalities, maybe even propping some up to be celebrities. 
Some claim to be of Paul, others claim to be of Apollos. In chapter 1, some claim to be of Cephas. Even some claim to be of the Christ party. I like that one. Well, we're of the Christ people. And you can't help but step back and go, does it really matter? But apparently it did. Lining up with the right person told you who you were and what you stand for. And so they took sides. In some eyes, it gave you status, a fair amount of thumbs up and Facebook, who knows. We do it all the time with our own political signs that we carry at rallies or graffiti that we spray on the walls. In this case, there was, we see here, the Apollos party. I don't know a lot. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about Apollos. But I imagine him as representing the more sophisticated, progressive crowd. He was from Alexandria, which was a cultural and educational center of the Hellenistic world. And the Greeks, I imagine, there in Corinth aligned, at least some of them did, with one who was more philosophical, a more uh, rhetorical tradition. He was this traveling merchant. He was bold. He was eloquent. He was perhaps less a verse-by-verse orator, more given to allegorical methods, some speculate. So think of Apollos as more of this preacher that was more of an imaginative storyteller. And he was eloquent, Scripture tells us this. And the Corinthians, of course, they were big on eloquence. They hobnobbed with other sophisticates in the Greek theater. And they expected eloquence from the pulpit. So Apollos was their guy. Luke describes Apollos as logios, which is the word meaning learned. In fact, he's described in Acts 18.24 as, quote, mighty in the scriptures. He was zealous. He was a tower of strength. Now, there were those on the other side who identified with Paul. If you lined up with Paul, let's just imagine for a moment that maybe some would have said, well, he's more biblical. He's the conservative in the crowd. He's from Tarsus, yes, and it's not Alexandria. But even some in this day saw Tarsus as even a greater intellectual center. I mean, Paul was the who's who of the day. I read his autobiography in Philippians 3. He had the right pedigree. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had one of the most seminal minds in the first century. I think of Paul as the strict constitutionalist, if there ever was one. He may not have been eloquent like Apollos. In fact, the Corinthians referred to his style in the pulpit as contemptible. But while Apollos was maybe more imaginative, Paul was a lot more straightforward, sort of BSF guy. More importantly, this is the one who planted the church. Apollos came along later. That's not hard to imagine that Whoever one followed implied something good about you and maybe something bad about the other. It's not hard to imagine, of course, because we do it all the time today. We have some tendency to engage in our own identity politics, create exclusive alliances. We're good at virtue signaling, grandstanding. We want people to know who we line up with, who we follow because it affirms our virtues. 
and it calls into question others. We've turned our moral talk, as one writer puts it, into a vanity project. Everybody, it seems, have you noticed, wants to try to out-virtue the other person. So we align with the party or movement, and we use this to elevate ourselves. We use this as a form of self-promotion. While at the same time, we humiliate and intimidate and shame and even threaten, certainly seek to silence others. Paul found this behavior, as we should find this behavior, reprehensible. Which leads to then his second admonition. And that is, stop being like the world. I see this, in fact, in these two times, verse 4, Paul raises this question. Are you not acting like mere men? And he does this twice for emphasis. Paul, in a sense, is saying, You're acting just like everyone else. Isn't the church supposed to be dissimilar, unique, extraordinary, supernatural? Aren't we supposed to be above politics and factions and all of these petty things? I mean, didn't Christ save us to be more than mere men? This is what Paul is asking. This is what Paul was asking them. This is what I hear the Spirit of God in this passage asking us. Perhaps like a number of you, I've been reading some of the, the news of this horrific predatory, all these exploits going on with the apologist Ravi Zacharias, whose pattern of abusive sexual behavior is coming to light. And many are asking this question, how could someone who was seemingly so deep with God turn out to be actually a sociopath? One writer actually put it this way, which I find both spot on, but also really troubling. He says, the culture doesn't reject us, the church, because they don't believe the church's doctrinal and moral teachings, but because the church doesn't believe its own doctrinal and moral teachings. So Paul is saying, you're just like the world. And we see more and more people, even people that we put up on these pedestals acting like the world. So what's the remedy? This leads to the third exhortation, and that is stop making so much of people. This is, this is clear in verses 5 through 9. Stop acting like everything rides on us, rides on you. What does Paul say about himself? He says, we're just servants. And he will underscore this over and over. Don't make me out to be the super apostle. Quit trying to make me part of one of these parties you follow. He will refer to himself in chapter 4 as an under rower. I'm a slave. I like McKnight who puts it this way. He intends to be so lost in the story of Christ that his story is only meaningful if it is the story of Christ. Think about that. Because that's really what should define us and should define those of us in the church. It's not about us. This is what Paul is saying. It's not about us. It's about him. We're simply field workers, he goes on to say. We just complement one another. We have differing assignments. Who's Apollos? Well, he's, he's there watering. Who am I? I'm planting seeds. One's an evangelist. One's a teaching pastor. 
what does it matter? We're, we're on the same team doing the same thing. We're fundamentally the same. We don't really affect anything. We're just the hired hands. This is the language he's using in these verses. We have our field assignments, and each one will get paid what is due. Which leads then to the final exhortation, and that is, so start making something of God. Because as he says twice here in verse 6 and 7, it's God who causes the growth. I plant Paul's waters, but we don't really make anything happen. It's God. He's the one who makes things happen. This is his world. This is his field. We're, we're, just, we're just the people working in it. Quit making so much of others. Pastors, presidents, CEOs. Stop boasting, as he will say at the end of this chapter, stop your boasting in men. And as he closes this chapter, he'll say, put your boast in Christ. So let's think for a moment as we come to conclude. Could it be that much of our anger, much of our polarization going on in our crazy world today is because we're doing the same exact thing? We're making way too much of people and we're making far too less of God. I wonder how many people will spend hours watching cable talk news and 10 minutes with God as a, as a daily pattern, if you will, as if life really is determined by what happens in Washington, D.C. or any other power center, when the reality is, it's really what God's doing. But we have this tendency, this propensity to keep putting people on pedestals so that we can find our identity in them. And then you, you know what we do. We put people, we elevate people, we elevate parties, and they can never live up to what we want them to be. So then we spend our time, once we prop them up, tearing them down because they can't live up to our expectations. And one can hear Paul again, are you not mere men? Are we not mere men? It's God who establishes the world. It's God who's sovereign. It's God who is the Lord over this world, and he determines its times, not us. I like Bryson in his book on the body, who in a very humbling way put it, Put it this way, the fact that we shed a million flakes of skin every hour is a reminder that silently and remorselessly we turn to dust. If the church can get back to its priorities, to make much of God and a lot less of us, it just might be we'll get past our divisions. It just might be that the church will be there without an ugly ladder. Well, let me pray. Dear God in heaven, this text speaks so much to us today. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of our tendency to prop people up, to make much of people 
perhaps in a way to try to make much of ourselves. And dear God, help us to get back to making much of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.